Section twenty six of the Freedman's Book by Lydia Maria Child. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Progress of Emancipation in the British West Indies. Part one by L. Maria Child. Nothing has ever been done in this world more wicked and cruel than the slave trade on the coast of Africa. But the temptation to carry it on was very great, for hundreds of men and women could be bought for a cask of poor rum or a peck of cheap beads, and could be sold in the markets of America or the West Indies for thousands of dollars. A hundred years ago men were not at all ashamed of growing rich in this bad way. They were respected in society as much as other men. They were often members of churches and professed to be very pious. Perhaps they deceived themselves as well as others, and really thought they were pious, because they observed all the ritual forms of religion. But above all their prayers, God heard the groans and the cries of the poor tortured Africans. He put it into the heart of a young Englishman named Thomas Clarkson, to inquire into the wicked business that was going on under the sanction of the government, and unreproved by the church. In the course of his investigations, this young man discovered that the most shocking cruelties were habitually practiced. He found that poor creatures stolen from their homes were packed close like bales of goods in the dark holds of ships where they were half choked by bad odors from accumulated filth, and where they could hardly breathe for want of air. The food allotted them was merely enough to keep them alive. Many died of grief and despair, and still more of burning fevers and other diseases. Living and dead often remained huddled together for hours, and when the corpses were removed they were thrown out to the sharks. But the sea captains engaged in this horrid traffic were selfish as well as cruel. They did not like to have their victims die, because every one they lost on the passage diminished the dollars they expected to get by selling them. So at times they brought the poor half-dead wretches on deck, and drove them round with a whip for exercise, and insulted their misery by compelling them to dance and sing the songs they had sung in their native land. Thomas Clarkson called public attention to the subject by publishing these things in a pamphlet. More than thirty years before, the humane sect called Quakers had forbidden any of its members to be connected with the slave trade. But though the abominable traffic had been carried on more than two hundred and fifty years by various nations calling themselves Christian, there had been no attempt to excite general attention to the subject till Clarkson published his pamphlet in 1786, seventy-nine years ago. He became so much interested in the question that he gave up all other pursuits in life, and wrote and lectured and talked about it incessantly. The assembled representatives of the people, which we call a Congress, is called a Parliament in Great Britain. He tried to bring the subject before that body, and succeeded in gaining the attention of some members, among whom the most conspicuous was the benevolent William Wilberforce. He soon joined Mr. Clarkson in the formation of a society for the abolition of the slave trade. This, of course, gave great offense to the sea captains and merchants engaged in the profitable traffic. Clarkson met with all manner of insult and abuse, and his life was sometimes in danger. 
the British government did as governments are apt to do. It sided with the rich and powerful as long as it was politic to do so. But though many of the aristocracy were haughty and selfish, the generality of the common people were ready to sympathize with the poor and the oppressed. When they became aware of the outrages committed in the slave trade, they determined that a stop should be put to it. They wrote and talked and petitioned Parliament, till the government was compelled to pay some attention to their demands. When the friends of the infernal traffic found that a resolution to abolish it was likely to be passed, they contrived to get the word gradual inserted into the resolution, and thus defeated the will of the people. For the gradual abolition of crime is no abolition at all. It was as absurd as it would have been for them to say that they would abolish murder gradually. But though the law was insufficient to accomplish the desired purpose, public opinion against the trade exerted an increasing influence. The friends of those who were engaged in it began to apologize for it as a necessary branch of trade, and pleaded that laborers could not be supplied in the hot climate of the West Indies in any other way. They were even shameless enough to defend it and praise it as a benevolent scheme to bring savages away from heathen Africa and make good Christians of them. Mr. Boswell, a well-known English writer of that period, went so far as to pronounce it a trade which God had sanctioned, and he declared that to abolish it would be to shut the gates of mercy on mankind. Such pretenses deceived some, but the English people have a great deal of good common sense, and it was not easy to convince them that stealing men, women, and children from their homes, torturing them on the ocean, and selling them in strange lands, to be whipped to incessant toil without wages, was a pious missionary enterprise. Clarkson, Wilberforce, and others continued their unremitting labors to suppress the unrighteous traffic. The kindly sect of Quakers everywhere assisted them, and benevolent people in other sects became more and more convinced that it was their duty to do the same. All manner of obstacles were put in the way of the desired reformation. But at last, after twenty-two years of violent agitation, the slave trade was entirely abolished by Great Britain at the commencement of the year 1808. Sixteen years later, it was decreed by law that any British subject caught in the traffic should be punished as a pirate. The king, George III, was opposed to the abolition, and so were all the royal family, except the Duke of Gloucester. The nobility and wealthy people, with a few honorable exceptions, took the same side. The measure was carried by the good sense and good feeling of the common people of Great Britain. There were no slaves in Great Britain. It had been decided by law that any slave who landed in that country became free the moment he touched the shore. But many of the West India Islands, lying between North and South America, were under the British government, and the laborers there were held in slavery. The English people knew very little what was going on in those distant colonies. When West India planters visited their relatives and friends in Great Britain, they made out a very fair story for themselves. They said none but Negroes could work in such a hot climate, that sugar must be made, and Negroes would not work unless they were slaves. 
they represented themselves as very kind masters and described their bondmen as a very contented and merry class of laborers these planters were generally dashing men who spent freely the money they did not earn and their fine manners and smooth talk gave the impression that they must be gentle men people were slow to believe the accounts of cruelties practised in the west indies by these polished gentlemen but more and more facts were brought to light to prove that there was little to choose between the slave trade and the system of slavery when the honest masses of the british people became convinced that the slaves in the west indies were entirely subject to the will of their masters however licentious that will might be and that they were kept in such brutal ignorance they could not read the bible they said at once that such a system ought to be abolished they sent missionaries to the west indies to teach the negroes the planters considered this an impertinent interference with their affairs they said if slaves were instructed they would rise in rebellion against their masters the english people replied that it must be a very bad system which made it dangerous for human beings to read the bible the more closely they inquired into the subject the more their indignation was roused brown faces and yellow faces among the slaves told a shameful story of licentious masters while the chains and whips and other instruments of torture found on every plantation proved that severe treatment was universal again the honest masses of the english people rose up in their moral majesty and said that wrong should be righted the government was unfavorable to the abolition of slavery and the aristocracy with a few honorable exceptions sympathized with the slaveholders the west indian planters were boiling over with rage they pulled down the chapels where the negroes met together to hear the words of jesus they mobbed the missionaries they thrust them into dungeons and two or three of them were killed some of the planters thought slavery was a bad system but they had to be very cautious in expressing such an opinion for if they were even suspected of favoring abolition their neighbors were sure to make them suffer for it in some way even women seemed to be filled with the spirit of furies whenever the subject of slavery was mentioned one of them said if she could get hold of mr wilberforce she would tear his heart out everywhere one heard mournful predictions of the ruin and desolation that would follow emancipation they insisted that negroes would not work unless they were slaves and of course no crops could be raised and what was still more to be dreaded they would murder all the whites and set fire to the towns sometimes they would present the subject from a benevolent point of view and urge that it would be the greatest unkindness to the negroes to give them freedom for when they had no kind masters to take care of them they would certainly starve the slaves of course found out that something in their favor was going on in england they watched eagerly for the arrival of vessels they took notice of everything that was said if they could get hold of a scrap of newspaper they hid it away and those who could read would read it privately to the others if their masters were unusually cross or swore more than common they would wink at each other and say there's good news for us from england the masters on their part watched the slaves closely 
if they were more silent than common, or if they appeared to be in better spirits than common, they suspected them of plotting insurrections. But the Negroes did more wisely than that. They believed that good people in England were working for them, and they tried to be patient till they were emancipated by law. There was but one exception to this. The planters in Jamaica were more bitter and furious than in the other islands. They formed societies to uphold slavery, and made flaming speeches against the people and Parliament of Great Britain for setting the slaves loose upon them, as they called it. They did not reflect that their colored servants, as they passed in and out, heard this violent language and had sense enough to draw conclusions from it but they did draw from it a conclusion very dangerous to their masters. They had heard talk of emancipation for several years, and it seemed to them that the promised freedom was a long time coming. In 1832 the speeches of the planters were so furious against the doings in Parliament that the slaves received the idea that the British government had already passed laws for their freedom, and that their masters were cheating them out of the legal rights that had been granted them. It was a sad mistake for the poor fellows, and brought a great deal of suffering upon themselves and others. They rose in insurrection, and it is said destroyed property to the amount of six million dollars. But instead of being protected by the British government, as they had expected, soldiers were sent over to put down the insurrection, and many of the negroes were shot and hung. Meanwhile their friends in England were working for them zealously. They published pamphlets and papers and made speeches, and urgently petitioned Parliament to let the people go. One petition alone was signed by eight hundred thousand women. One of the members, pointing to the enormous roll, said, There is no use in trying longer to resist the will of the people. When all the women in Great Britain are knocking at the doors of Parliament, something must be done. The government and the aristocracy were very reluctant to comply with the demands of the people. But at last, after eleven years of more violent struggle than it had taken to suppress the African slave trade, slavery itself was abolished in the British West Indies forever. The decree was to go into effect on the first day of August, 1834. Up to the very last day, the planters persisted in saying that the measure would ruin the islands. They said the emancipated slaves would do no work, but would go round in large gangs, robbing, stealing, murdering the whites, burning the houses and destroying the fields of sugar-cane. If the negroes had been revengeful, they might have done a great deal of mischief, for there were five times as many colored people in the islands as there were whites but they were so thankful to get their freedom at last that there was no room in their hearts for bad feelings. The tears were in their eyes as they told each other the good news, and said, Breast the Lord and a good English people. But many of the masters really believed their own alarming prophecies. When they found that emancipation could not be prevented, numbers left the islands. Some of those who remained did not dare to undress and go to bed on the night of the 31st of July, and those who tried to sleep were generally restless and easily startled. But while masters and mistresses were dreading to hear screams and alarms of fire, 
their emancipated slaves were flocking to the churches to offer up prayers and hymns of thanksgiving in the island of antigua there were thirty thousand slaves when the midnight clock began to strike twelve on the thirty first of july eighteen thirty four and when it had done striking they were all free men and free women it was a glorious moment never to be forgotten by them during the remainder of their lives the wesleyan methodists kept watch night in all their chapels one of the missionaries who exhorted the emancipated people and prayed with them thus described the solemn scene the spacious house was filled with the candidates for liberty all was animation and eagerness a mighty chorus of voices swelled the song of expectation and joy and as they united in prayer the voice of the leader was drowned in the universal acclamations of thanksgiving and praise and blessing and honor and glory to god who had come down for their deliverance in such exercises the evening was spent until the hour of twelve approached the missionary then proposed that when the cathedral clock should begin to strike the whole congregation should fall on their knees and receive the boon of freedom in silence accordingly as the loud bell tolled its first note the crowded assembly prostrated themselves all was silence save the quivering half-stifled breath of the struggling spirit slowly the tones of the clock fell upon the waiting multitude peal on peal peal on peal rolled over the prostrate throng like angels voices thrilling their weary heart-strings scarcely had the last tone sounded when lightning flashed vividly and a loud peal of thunder rolled through the sky it was god's pillar of fire his trump of jubilee it was followed by a moment of profound silence then came the outburst they shouted glory hallelujah they clapped their hands they leaped up they fell down they clasped each other in their free arms they cried they laughed they went to and fro throwing upward their unfettered hands high above all a mighty sound ever and anon swelled up it was the utterance of gratitude to god after this gush of excitement had spent itself the congregation became calm and religious exercises were resumed the remainder of the night was spent in singing and prayer in reading the bible and in addresses from the missionaries explaining the nature of the freedom just received and exhorting the people to be industrious steady and obedient to the laws and to show themselves in all things worthy of the high boon god had conferred upon them the first of august came on friday and a release from all work was proclaimed until the next monday the great mass of the negroes spent the day chiefly in the churches and chapels the clergy and missionaries throughout the island actively seized the opportunity to enlighten the people on all the duties and responsibilities of their new relation the day was like a sabbath a sabbath indeed when the wicked ceased from troubling and the weary were at rest the most kindly of the planters went to the chapels where their own people were assembled 
and shook hands with them and exchanged hearty good wishes at grace hill a moravian missionary station the emancipated negroes begged to have a sunrise meeting on the first of august as they had been accustomed to have at easter and as it was the easter morning of their freedom the request was granted the people all dressed in white and walked arm in arm to the chapel there a hymn of thanksgiving was sung by the whole congregation kneeling the singing was frequently interrupted by the tears and sobs of the melted people until finally they were overwhelmed by a tumult of emotion there was not a single dance by night or day not even so much as a fiddle played there were no drunken carousals no riotous assemblies the emancipated were as far from dissipation and debauchery as they were from violence and carnage gratitude was the absorbing emotion from the hilltops and the valleys the cry of a disenthralled people went upward like a sound of many waters glory to god glory to god mr blebley one of the methodist missionaries in jamaica thus describes the same night in that island the church where the emancipated people assembled at ten o'clock at night was very large but the aisles the gallery stairs the communion place the pulpit stairs were all crowded and there were thousands of people round the building at every open door and window looking in we thought it right and proper that our christian people should receive their freedom as a boon from god in the house of prayer and we gathered them together in the church for a midnight service our mouths had been closed about slavery up to that time we could not quote a passage that had reference even to spiritual emancipation without endangering our lives the planters had a law of constructive treason that doomed any man to death who made use of language tending to excite a desire for liberty among the slaves and they found treason in the bible and sedition in the hymns of watts and wesley and we had to be very careful how we used them you may imagine with what feelings i saw myself emancipated from this thraldom and free to proclaim liberty to the captive and the opening of prison doors to them that were bound i took for my text proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof it shall be a jubilee unto you a few minutes before midnight i requested all the people to kneel down in silent prayer to god as befitting the solemnity of the hour i looked down upon them as they knelt the silence was broken only by sobs of emotion which it was impossible to repress the clock began to strike it was the knell of slavery in all the british possessions it proclaimed liberty to eight hundred thousand human beings when i told them they might rise what an outburst of joy there was among that mass of people the clock had ceased to strike and they were slaves no longer mothers were hugging their babes to their bosoms old white-headed men embracing their children and husbands clasping their wives in their arms by and by all was still again and i gave out a hymn you may imagine the feelings with which these people 
just emerging into freedom, shouted, Send the glad tidings o'er the sea, his chains are broke, the slave is free. But though the dreaded first of August passed away so peacefully and pleasantly, the planters could not get rid of the idea that their laborers would not work after they were free. Mr. Daniel, who managed several estates in Antigua, talking of the subject two years afterward with an American gentleman from Kentucky, said, I expected some irregularities would follow such a prodigious change in the condition of the negroes. I suppose there would be some relaxation from labor during the week that followed emancipation. But on Monday morning I found all my hands in the field, not one missing. The same day I received a message from another estate, of which I was a proprietor, that the negroes, to a man, had refused to go into the field. I immediately rode to the estate, and found the laborers, with hoes in their hands, doing nothing. Accosting them in a friendly manner, I inquired, What is the meaning of this? How is it that you are not at work this morning? They immediately replied, It's not because we don't want to work, Massa, but we wanted to see you, first and foremost, to know what the bargain would be. As soon as that matter was settled, the whole body of negroes turned out cheerfully. Another manager declared that the largest gang he had ever seen in the field, on his property, turned out the week after emancipation. And such, in fact, was the universal testimony of the managers throughout Antigua. End of Progress of Emancipation in the British West Indies Part 1 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman